Okay, well, so how does your faith interact with your work? That's the question that we're examining throughout this entire series. This is a brand new series that we began just a few weeks ago. It's called Disciples at Work. But how does your faith interact with your work? How would you answer that question? Well, I believe that's a relevant question to everyone here because all of us, doesn't matter where you are in life, we are all engaged in work. So it could be a nine-to-five job outside the home. Okay, you're working. It could be a remote work from home. It could be getting a degree as a college student. Some of you guys are college students. It could be homeschooling children. It could be doing schoolwork as a child. Okay, some of you guys are children here having to do schoolwork. You're working. You're working very hard. It could even be acts of service in retirement. But I believe if you are in one of these categories, and I think that pretty much covers everybody, you are doing real work. And so how would you answer that question? How does your faith, your walk with God, interact with your work? You know, I read in one study that an average person with a lifespan of 80 years will spend about 20 to 30% of their waking hours doing work. Okay, that is a lot. That is about a third of your life, your waking life doing work. So work is a huge chunk of what you're going to be doing when you are awake every single day. And some of you at work, some of you guys are at work even when you're sleeping. So that percentage is even higher. I know, some of you residents, you sleep at work, you have to do that. Some of you guys sleep while you're at work. But all of this means we are just constantly going to be going in and out of work. It makes up a huge portion of our lives. So with all of this time spent working, again, how is your faith interacting with work? And as I mentioned in the past few weeks, the vast majority of Christians have no answer for that. They have no answer. But as we've been learning for the last few weeks, the Bible has a lot to say about how faith relates to work. A lot of it was uncovered and formulated during the Reformation. The Reformation is our heritage. This is where we come from, Protestant evangelical Christians. This was back in the 1500s, swept through Europe, and then it spread around the world. But this is the place when the rich theology of work and faith was formulated. They uncovered it from the Bible, and they began to formulate it. And what we've looked at so far has only scratched the surface. So I look forward to looking at it much more in the weeks ahead. But here's what we've seen so far, right? Just barely scratching the surface. But one of the first things we see about God in the Bible is what? Right when you open up the pages of Scripture, what do you see? Well, in most religions around the world, what they say about their gods, right when you begin to hear their story, is they're in a cosmic struggle. That's what most religions say. And out of that struggle came the world and came their gods and all this stuff, but not the one true God. When you open up the Bible, what do you see God doing right from the beginning? He's at work. He is a working God. So that is one of the first things you learn about the one true God. But he is always at work. He created everything. He is now caring for everything. He's providing for the needs of people. He's judging sin. And he's redeeming the lost all throughout the world. So he's always at work. And because God is at work, he has now called us, we are now in his image, to do what? To work. Yes, to make money. Yes, to provide. But it's just a calling upon every human being. He has called us to work. He has called us to work, to serve him, to serve others. But he's also called us to work, to reform work. Right? So we've looked at that as well. Because inevitably in this world, work is going to get distorted by sin. It's not going to be exactly what it should be. And so even in scripture we see that. You should work to reform work even. And so all of that is a calling from God. 
Do you see that? It's just everywhere, all throughout scripture. God is a working God and he has called us to work. But it goes even deeper than that because God is also working through your work. So he doesn't just call you to work, but he's working through your work. And I know you guys, a lot of you guys work and you don't believe that. You don't believe that. But God is providing for people's needs through your work. He's building up companies, hospitals, He's building up things in society. He's promoting human flourishing. He's doing all of that through your work. Even if you're there just to get a paycheck, God in a sovereign hand is building out the world through your work. How do you think the world got to where it's at? It's through the people's work. So God is constantly working through your work. And so what does that make work? Okay, we've looked at this for the last few weeks. It makes work spiritual. It makes it spiritual. This was the great new revelation of the Reformation that came against the Catholic Church is that there is no divide between spiritual and sacred, but everything is spiritual. Your work is spiritual. So no matter how normal or insignificant your work might seem, your work is spiritual. Why? Because God's working through your work. Again, I don't think a lot of Christians believe that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when you go to work every Monday morning and throughout the week, God is literally working through your work? Now, some of you guys might be thinking, okay, easy for you to say, Roy, you're a pastor. It's easy to see God at work in preaching and teaching the Bible. Of course, God's working through that. But I code all day, right? I'm a software engineer. Or I make donuts at 5 o'clock in the morning, and then I sell these donuts all day long. And by the way, I used to buy donuts every single Sunday to bring to church. I stopped doing that. Other people are doing stuff now. But I got to know the donut store owner near my house. Very interesting life. But he said he wakes up at like 3 a.m. and gets to the store by 5 and begins to make donuts. And he works there all day long. And when I think about that man, I I believe his name was Mike. But that's spiritual work. How is God working through that work? Well, the answer is very simple. We ate those donuts. God's people ate those donuts. But more than that though, right? More than that. How is God working through work? In countless ways. Seen and unseen ways. I mean, we can't even count all the ways, but he's providing for people's needs. He's building up society. He's putting circumstances together like puzzle pieces in order to accomplish his purposes. So what am I saying? We don't even know how, but he is at work. So I think this is one of the most foundational shifts that we need to make in our thinking when it comes to work. Yes, do you go there to get money? I understand. You need to get paid. You need to provide for your families. That's even how God answers that prayer. Give us our daily bread. God's like, here's a job. Provide for your family. Provide for yourself. But beyond that, do you see your work as a way that God is working? Has that shift happened? Every day when you go into work, if it's honest, real work, then God is at work. More than just as a comforter, but he is working, right? So literally, as your hands begin to engage in your work every day, every morning, God's hands are also right there, working. Right on top of your hands or right through your hands. So I know I've said this every week and you may be getting tired of it, but Luther said, God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. Martin Luther was the leader of the Reformation. But do you believe that? God is the one working in your work. And if you can accept that truth, it's going to give you a whole new perspective on work. It'll it'll give you a radical new shift. You're not going to just go in there to make money, but there's, there's more going on, right? God, are you here? God is there. God, are you working through my work? Yes, he's working. 
So with all of that now, with all of that theological truth backing our work, there are still challenges to work, right? So there are challenges to work. And one of the challenges that we've been looking at from the opening chapter of Daniel is the challenge of keeping our faith in a workplace that might be maybe neutral to faith, maybe even hostile to faith. But how can you be faithful to God while at the same time be faithful to your work, to your workplace? So that's the challenge. So how do you do both? And this challenge is only going to get harder and harder because our culture is getting more and more secular and pagan. But this is a challenge we're all going to face. But as I go into work, how am I going to be faithful to God but also be faithful to this work I'm called to do and be faithful to my workplace? How am I going to do both? And like Daniel, we're going to be having to answer this question in a tougher and tougher environment as time goes on. But we are all working in Babylon, just like Daniel. In the Bible, Babylon is the representation of worldliness. But we are all in Babylon. So what do we do as believers working in Babylon? Well, for the last two weeks, we looked at how we shouldn't deal with this challenge. Unfortunately, this is how a lot of Christians deal with this challenge. So you go to work on Monday morning, you feel this challenge, right? Okay, gosh, it's hard to be faithful to God here, but I also have to be a good worker here and be faithful to this. How do I do both? And in the face of that challenge, most Christians, I don't know about most, but a lot, a lot of Christians, they're going to do one or two things. They're going to assimilate. So that's one way they respond. What we mean by that is they're going to hide their faith, never talk about it, it never comes up, never brought up, and they become no different than all the other people there in their beliefs and behaviors, right? You just become one of. You get on board. You're just a part of everything going on there. You assimilate. And there will be constant pressure from our culture to do this, but we need to resolve like Daniel not to. So we're going to look at that more again later. But assimilate, that's one way. Another way people deal with this challenge is they isolate, right? They isolate themselves. In other words, they withdraw from everyone in that workplace because of their faith. So because they have this faith in Christ, they look around and they go, you know what? This is a hostile place. They're not too welcoming of my faith. So they withdraw and then they have this kind of antagonistic stance against their workplace. Now, sometimes you might not have this stance against your work, but your work might have it against you, right? You're not there to make enemies, but they just see you as an enemy. They see you as different. You're not one of them, right? You're the other. You're a threat. So that can happen. But it didn't happen because Daniel was against his workplace and withdrew. So in Daniel's case, they didn't see him as a threat and as different because he withdrew. It wasn't because he isolated. Neither did he assimilate. But for some Christians, a lot of Christians today, that's the reason why. They isolate themselves, right? So people see them as different, as other. So these are the two different ways that people can approach this challenge. They either assimilate or they isolate. But there is a third way. And this is what I want to look at today, right? This is where things get very exciting. But the third way that you can approach this challenge at work. How do you be faithful to God but also be faithful to the work that you're called to do? Well, you can live out the gospel. That's the third way. You can begin to live out the gospel right in your workplace. And this is exactly what Daniel and his friends did. But they began to walk out the gospel in their lives. And they did it by having a gospel identity. They did it by having gospel convictions. And then finally, that led to gospel actions. In response to that, 
God saved them. There was salvation. So we'll see that at the very end. So is that clear? There are three ways to respond. Assimilate, isolate, or the gospel. And I want to encourage everybody here, we need to look at the gospel way, right? how to live it out. So how do you live out the gospel in your workplace? Well, the first way is you need to have a gospel identity, a gospel identity. Look at Daniel 1, 1 through 4. Okay, we're going to read these passages because I want us to see it. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He attacked and destroyed Jerusalem. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So here, right from the beginning, we see from Daniel's own pen, because Daniel is the author of this book. Some liberal scholars deny that. They have other theories. But we believe that Daniel wrote this book. That's the tradition that we receive from history, church history. But from Daniel's own pen, we see that Daniel had a very clear sense of who he was and where he belonged and where his friends came from and where they belonged and who they were. But he had a very clear sense of their identity. So we see that right from the beginning. And this identity went beyond their ethnicity, their culture, their age, their gender. It was rooted in something far deeper. But their identity was rooted in their covenant relationship with God. So this is what we see. So these teenagers, just 14, 15 years old, ripped from their families and their homes in Israel because God brought judgment upon Israel. Now they're all the way in a foreign land, a hostile land, Babylon, and yet they knew. See, Daniel, when he wrote this book, thinking back to that time, he's like, I knew my identity. I knew my identity. It was rooted in covenant relationship with God. And it was a covenant based on God's election and sheer grace. Okay, these words are very important, all of these words. Okay, this was their identity. And so a covenant relationship is a relationship based on this binding agreement rooted in this deep commitment. The closest example I can think of today is marriage. It's kind of like marriage. And yet there's a twist to it. God's covenant had a key difference to marriages today. But God's covenant with the Israelites was based on God perfectly keeping his part of the covenant, but it was not based on the Israelites keeping perfectly their part of the covenant. How many guys would like a marriage like that? <laughs> you keep your part perfectly. I don't need to keep my part. But this was God's covenant with the Israelites. Yes, they needed to keep their part. But if they failed, the covenant still stood. It was never going to be broken because it was based on God keeping his covenant, his part. So this is what Daniel and his friends identified with. This is what their identities were in. So you could say that Daniel and his friends had a gospel identity. Okay, this is where I get this, gospel identity. See, even though Daniel lived long before Jesus even came and died and rose again, his relationship with God was similar to ours in Christ. Because think about our identity. What is it rooted in? It is rooted in a covenant relationship with God based on God's sheer grace. His election of us, his choosing of us, and his grace. See, it's the exact same. 
Every single believer in Christ has the same kind of covenant relationship with God, like Daniel. And so it's the exact same. So Daniel and his friends had this gospel identity, and he was crystal clear about it. And so we see this, especially in the opening paragraph. Okay, as Daniel was writing this paragraph, you see three times Daniel mentioning this identity, actually more than three times, but he said they were the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, verse one. They were the people who had the house of God with God dwelling in their midst, verse two. They were the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, verse four. Do you see that? Daniel was so clear where they're from, where they belong. All of these key words, they connected Daniel and his friends back to God's covenant people in the Old Testament, in other parts of the Old Testament. Daniel's like, we're part of that. We're connected to all that. We are part of Judah, Jerusalem, the house of God, Israel. He wasn't confused. And because they were the covenant people of God, God was sovereignly working in their lives. Daniel also knew that. So Daniel, when he wrote this first paragraph, chapter one, and he's thinking back, three times Daniel used these two words, God gave, God gave, God gave. He's like, God's sovereign. I don't care where we are, what what has happened? I mean, is this horrible that we're in exile? We got ripped from our homes? Most of us are gonna die here? Yeah, it's terrible. But God still gave. He's sovereign. So in verse two, it says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So Daniel knew God was the one. As horrible as this is, God's the one who did this. As discipline upon our sin. But God gave the king of Israel into the king of Babylon's hand. He's the reason why they were all in Babylon. God gave. In verse nine, God gave Daniel favor and compassion the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. See, God knew, or Daniel knew, that God was the one who gave him favor. See, I'm I'm in this total hostile workplace. How am I gonna get through this? Well, God gave. God gave me favor. It says in verse 17, and for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So Daniel knew God was the one who gave us all this ability. Caused us to excel at our work. Okay, why? Why did God give? It's because we are the covenant people of God based on grace. Sheer grace. This grace couldn't be clear because who's writing this letter? An exile. They were in exile because of judgment upon sin and yet even in this place of judgment and discipline, God gave. Most of us, we don't believe that. We don't even see that. If we screwed up and now God's discipline is on our lives and we're kind of struggling, then we don't see God giving anything. We don't see God gave And yet this was Daniel's perspective. Why? Because we are the covenant people of God. See, his identity was in that. So they had this gospel identity that was anchored in this deep soil of God's covenant grace. I can't emphasize that enough. You gotta get this. Otherwise, you're not gonna be living out the gospel at your workplace. This is step one. So why is this so important? Why is this identity the first thing we must have? The reason is because without a firmly rooted gospel identity, you will not live out the gospel in your workplace. See, one of the quickest ways to become assimilated is to not be clear about your identity in Christ. If you walk into work every day and you're like, I I don't know, yeah, I'm a Christian, sure. But if that's not clear in your mind, if you're not anchored in that, then all these new identities that begin to get pressed onto you, you're gonna just receive them. They're readily accepted. 
And we already saw this last week, but your workplace is going to be passing these new identities on all the time. And so Christians who become assimilated like that aren't anchored in their identity in Christ, and they will never live out the gospel. So that's some people. Okay, that's why some people don't live out the gospel. But for other people, there's a different reason. They're not able to live out the gospel at work because they might know they're Christians. Okay, by name, they know that they're a Christian by name. But because their identity is not rooted and stable in Christ and is not rooted in God's covenant relationship with them, they have anxiety. They're just anxious. There are people who are anxious all the time. You know, James K. Smith, I actually like listening to him and reading his books, but he's a philosopher and theologian, but he talks about how we live in a very anxious age. And so much of that anxiety does not come from how much material goods we have, how much money we have, we don't have. And the reason why is because we live in the most affluent society that the planet has ever known in the history of all mankind. We are living in the most affluent society, and yet we are the most anxious society. So it has nothing to do with what we have or don't have. So where's all this anxiety coming from? Well, Smith says a lot of the anxiety comes from people today, and I quote, living to be seen by others and how they are seen by others. Living to be seen by others and how they are seen by others. And then he goes on to say, people feel valued just to the extent that we are seen by others as worthy, as worth seeing. And when we don't experience that, people seeing as worth seeing, when we don't feel that we are being seen, the bottom falls out. So this is what Smith is noticing. And so obvious, you know, this is obvious when you look at teenagers on social media, but this is also true of people at work. Okay, what, what is the most performance-based environment you can think of? It's work. The moment you step into work, you got to perform. You better perform. Do you see all the layoffs happening, all the cuss the companies are making, you better perform. And so the moment you're there, you immediately realize, I got to be seen. I got to be seen as worth seen, being seen. I got to be seen as valuable, and I need to perform. And so that is my work, and that is my identity. Okay, every day, I need to get there, and I need to perform, and I need to be seen as valuable. Okay, that's the identity I have. And for those whose identities are not rooted deeply in something else, the covenant grace of God, you're anxious. Okay, every day you're anxious. Anxiety is actually a major problem for people facing in the workplace these days that they're facing. You know, I, I read a lot of things out there about the culture, and, and that's what I see. I even remember I knew someone who literally had health issues from anxiety at work. Eventually he had to go see the doctor. He was in the hospital because of anxiety at work. And this, was, this is so interesting, but Smith also says this. But he says the antithesis or the opposite of joy is not sadness, it's anxiety. So the opposite of joy is not sadness, it's anxiety. So not only are you anxious at work, you have no joy at work. You know, I remember when I first heard that, I thought to myself, is that true? Really? <laughs> like, how, how can that be true? The opposite of joy is not sadness, it's anxiety. But the more I thought about it, I believe he's right. It's true. It's true. And where I saw that truth is right on people's faces. It's written on people's faces. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, someone can be very sad, right? Okay, we've all had friends. Maybe they broke up. They were in a relationship, and now they're very, very sad. Okay, <laughs> I, had, I had brothers, you know. They, they would say, Roy, today's the day. Okay, go do it, man. 
And then an hour later, they come back, how'd it go? Not good. And now they're sitting on their bed, you know, in our dorm room, and they're like, Hoo-hoo. It's like, oh, man, you know, I, I kind of feel bad. You know, you're kind of sad, okay. But in the very midst of that sadness, as I'm talking to them, as they have tears filling up their eyes, what happens? They smile, right? They get over it, right? They smile. We've all, we've all seen that, right? And guess what? We believe their smile. Why do we believe their smile, even though they're so sad, even as tears are welling up in their eyes? It's because we know, even though they're sad right now, they have this deeper joy and they're going to be okay. So the opposite of joy is not sadness. You can be sad but have a deeper joy at the same time. You can be sad and have a smile and we believe that. But I don't think the same is true for somebody who's feeling very anxious. Because if somebody is very anxious, if you have a friend who's always worried and now they're talking about all the things they're worried about and as you're talking to them, they kind of crack a smile, right? They, they kind of smile a little bit. We tend to not believe that smile. In fact, it makes us more worried. It's like, ah, I don't know, are you going to be okay? Right? So you're trying to put on a smile, I'm, I'm not sure about that. And I think the reason why is because Smith is right. The opposite of joy is not sadness, it's anxiety. When you're deeply anxious, you cannot have joy. There is no joy in your heart. And if this is you, at work, constantly anxious, you won't have joy. And without joy and with all this anxiety, you will not be living out the gospel at work. So this is one of the major hindrances. Even if you know you should, even if you come to the promise and you hear these sermons, you're not going to live out the gospel at work. It's not because you're not committed to God. It's not because you don't love him. It's not because you're not a, a good follower of Christ. It's just you can't. You find it nearly impossible. So what is the solution? Well, like Daniel, we need to have a clear identity as God's covenant people. You are chosen by sheer grace in Christ. So imagine how easy it would have been for Daniel and his friends to be anxious. Okay, imagine just being thrown into this hostile environment. Okay, their heads are could be on the chopping block at any moment. They need to perform, right? Perform. Imagine how anxious they would have been. Imagine how joyless their work would have been. And yet they rose above it and lived out the gospel. Again, I emphasize how they knew who they were. They knew their identity in God. So everyone is wanting to be seen and to be seen as valuable, especially in the workplace. The most performance-oriented environment you can imagine and yet, what you need to realize as you come into work is, oh, I'm seen. God sees me. God sees me. And God sees me as already his and as already valuable. And this is not self-help psychobabble. Okay, this is gospel identity. I, I'm being dead serious about this. If you do not come into work every day and you're like, I'm seen already. I'm valuable. I'm already seen by God. God sees me right now. He's, in fact, working through me. This is my identity. Even in this high, intense, pressured environment of performance, you have no chance to overcome anxiety and joylessness. You will not live out the gospel. And yet God has given us everything, amen? So you can have this identity. You can begin to live out the gospel in your workplace. But you need something more than just gospel identity. You also need gospel convictions. Gospel convictions. So look at Daniel 1, verse 8. It says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, with the wine that he drank. 
So here, Daniel resolved to not defile himself with the king's food. Okay, we already looked at this last week. We looked at the reasons why, okay, all the things behind it. But I want to look at the deeper reason why. Okay, here's the deeper reason why Daniel resolved not to eat the king's food. It's not only because the food was unclean, but it's because he knew who he was and where he belonged. In other words, he was clear on his identity, but he also was clear on where he belonged. But he was a citizen of heaven. And because of this, he knew where his loyalty lied. It lied with God in heaven. That's where his commitment was. That's where his loyalty was. That's where his citizenship was. And so in the same way, every Christian is the same. We belong to heaven. We are citizens of the heavenly city. Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven for which also we eagerly await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I think a lot of Christians, we might know this, but we don't really believe this. Okay, when we come into work, we don't see ourselves as citizens first of heaven. But, Nate, but Daniel knew this. So he would not do anything to break God's law as a good citizen of Jerusalem, the heavenly city. So we, we understand this when we think about our country, and hopefully you guys are all good citizens, and you would never dare even dream of breaking certain laws of this country, right? Like burning an American flag in public. I mean, who, who would do that here, right? Go out into public and burn the American flag. So good citizens would never do that. And in addition to that, we don't want to be fined $1,000 and go to prison for a year. That's the penalty of burning the American flag. Literally, you just torch this little piece of cloth and you can go to jail for a year and pay $1,000. But good citizens would never even think of doing that. So that's Daniel here. He couldn't even imagine as a citizen of heaven to break God's law, even if it was a dietary law. And so this commitment to honor God as a good citizen of heaven is a gospel conviction. So that's one gospel conviction. Okay, this is what we're talking about. When you come into work, you have this conviction. Okay, I belong to God. Even before I belong to Google, I belong to you know, Kaiser or Loma Linda or whatever you work, I belong to God. I belong to his heavenly city. And if we know that Jesus was that committed to us, and he gave up everything so that we could be citizens of this heaven, then we're going to be as committed to him. See, this is also another gospel conviction. We're going to be committed to him. So whatever he wants, yeah, we're going to be doing that. I'm committed to him. So from the gospel, we know that Jesus was utterly committed to us. He sacrificed everything so that we could belong to him and belong to heaven. And because we know that, we are now going to be just as committed to him and be good citizens of his kingdom. Okay, this, this is where Daniel is coming from. This is where that resolve came from. I'm not going to do this. Okay, it's not because I'm, I'm a goody two I'm not, you know, It's not because I'm a good boy. It's because I have these convictions. And so do you have this gospel conviction? From the gospel, we also know that Jesus was tortured. He was murdered on the cross because of our sins. So we don't take sin lightly either. Okay, that's another gospel conviction. So anytime we see a red line of sin and crossing that line would be entering into sin, we say no. Okay, we might wrestle, we might struggle, but ultimately we resolve, no, I, I'm not going to cross that because I know what Jesus did. See, that's a gospel conviction. You know, I remember reading this about a Christian man. He worked in finance. I believe he worked in one of these top firms. And at one point, this company was going to make this huge investment in a business. It was going to be very profitable. But this man, this Christian man, as he began to kind of look into it more, he was kind of in the management level. He began to realize, oh, no, this is not a good business. It's not illegal, but this business is actually not good for society. 
Okay, I don't know exactly what it was, but it wasn't the greatest thing, right? And so he wrestled with it because everybody in that company, all the management, all the leadership, they wanted to move forward. It was going to be very, very profitable. And so he prayed about it. He struggled. He talked about it with his pastor. And then in the end, he decided, and this was so like, it was just so wise. But he didn't want to get in the way of this company because this wasn't technically an illegal thing. It wasn't technically sin, but he just didn't feel good about it. So he told the leadership, you know what? I will not veto your decision if you decide to move forward. I'm not going to veto it. But he said, but I will not take a single dollar from any profits from this, from this like, investment. I'm not going to take any profits. And he told the entire company why. And so he was able to be a witness, but at the same time, he was able to keep that commitment, right? That commitment to Christ. I'm a citizen of a different city. I am committed to a different king. And so this was his gospel conviction. This is the same thing we see Daniel doing. So this is the first conviction we have. But if you stop there, then you've fallen short. Because that is not the only gospel conviction we should have at work. That is not the only gospel conviction. And I know people today, we see the Bible as backward, outdated, lacking nuance, but the opposite is true. The Bible is far more nuanced than all the ideas floating out around there. But the Bible is far more nuanced when it comes to human beings and the world and, you know, reality. And I see this again and again and again. And the Bible is more nuanced here as well. There's more nuance here as well. We are not just citizens of heaven where we just draw red lines everywhere. Oh, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> right? I mean, a lot of Christians live like that. And what happens? Now you're isolated. Now you're back to that thing that we shouldn't do. The Bible is far more nuanced than that. You know what, what else the Bible says? You're also a citizen of this world. It acknowledges that. Of course, it puts forth the citizenship in heaven as first and foremost. But the Bible also acknowledges, yeah, you're also a citizen here. Jesus said in Mark 12, 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Somebody came to him and said, do we pay taxes, Jesus? Should we pay taxes? And Jesus answers, yes, pay your taxes. Be good citizens. Give to the king what belongs to the king. Paul said in Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Really? Even North Korea, Kim Jong-un? I, I don't know, I'm not gonna go there, but, but that's what the Bible says. Every government on earth has been instituted by God. So be good citizens. That's what Paul is saying again. He's encouraging believers, be good citizens. Submit to your rulers as long as they're not directly opposing God's will. Of course, once they do that, then we must obey God, not man. But until that happens, submit to your rulers. Be good citizens. So do you see this? The Bible acknowledges that we have, so we have this kind of dual citizenship. First and foremost, we belong to heaven. That is our home. Okay, that is where we're going. That is our citizenship. But we also belong here, in a sense, right? We belong here. I like what Augustine said but he wrote about this in his book, City of God. But he said, we're actually resident aliens. So some of us, or many of us know what that means. But when our families came here, if they immigrated, then then you know what that means. But we are resident aliens here. So we really do live here. We live here. So we're not imposters. We're not faking our place in society, right? If you're a teacher, are are you faking that? No, you're a real teacher in a real school. If you're a doctor, I mean, are you pretending? Are you just showing up, putting on a gown? Hey, let me check your temperature. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you're a real physician in a real hospital. 
If you have a business in the community, I mean, are you, are you playing games? No, you're running a real business for real people in the community. If you're a student in a university, are you, are you like faking it? No, you're a real student there. You're enrolled, right? If I look for your name, oh my gosh, he's lying to us. <laughs> Actually, there was a person like that at the church I went to in college. <laughs> there was a guy, he showed up, he's like, I go to USC and you know, I'm on the volleyball team and all this stuff. And later we found out none of that was true. But most of us were not like that, right? Most of us were not like that. We're not faking it. So what does that mean? You really do belong here, right? You are a citizen of heaven, but you are also a citizen here. And so please get this point. Don't, don't miss this. Okay, why does this matter? It's because in the overlap of the two citizenships and the overlap of the two kingdoms that we belong to, and there's a tension there, right? That is where all the power comes from. That is where all the transformation comes from in your life and around you, in the people around you at work. It's in that overlap. And you see that so clearly with Jesus. But Jesus really was a Jew, really did grow up in Nazareth. He really was from that community. And yet we know he was the son of God. He was the son of man, but the son of God. And he lived in this tension. There was this overlap in his life. And he was utterly committed as a son of God, a citizen of God in heaven. But he was also truly a son of man here. And in that overlap, in that tension, he changed the world. And it's going to be the same for us, brothers and sisters. When you walk into work, I mean, you have two citizenships. This needs to be a conviction, a gospel conviction. I belong to heaven, first and foremost. But I really do also belong here. I really do work here. And in that tension, in that overlap, that's where all the power is going to be. That's where people are going to be wondering, like, what, what is it with you? Okay, you don't seem like everyone here. Okay, why do you do things differently? Okay, why aren't you going to take all the profits from this investment? This is like the biggest deal we're going to make. Well, it's because of that tension and that overlap. That's where I live. So this is the gospel conviction we must all have. Okay, the gospel not only turns us upward, it turns us outward. For many Christians, we know that. Okay, yeah, me and Jesus... But Jesus, can you just wait here at home? I'm going to go to work. I'll see you when I come back. It's just upward at home. But God goes, no, no. It's upward at home and at work. It's up and it's outward at home and at work. There's no divide. You have both, both convictions. Citizens this way and we're citizens this way. So the gospel turns us outward first to God and then to others or all around us. And all throughout history, this is how the gospel has been transforming the world. You know, I love reading about stories in ancient history of how the gospel swept through the Roman Empire, the greatest, most powerful empire at that time, and it just swept through that entire empire. In a few hundred short years, it became Christian. The entire Roman Empire was Christianized. Do you know how that happened? It happened as these Christians, they were beaten, tortured, martyred for their faith, and yet over time, because they were citizens of heaven, but they were such good citizens there. And you really saw that during the plagues, because the plagues just kept swept through the empire. But whenever the plagues swept through, the Christians, as everyone took off, senators first, the rulers took off first, and then the nobility, and then everyone else later, but as everyone left the cities, you know who stayed behind? The Christians. It was very well known. The Christians stayed behind. They're the ones who would pick up the sick and dying in the streets and bring them into their homes. They're the ones who would feed them soup, cover them with blankets, and then eventually they caught the plague. They died. 
But as people saw that again and again and again, it turned their hearts to the gospel. Okay, what is that? Is it they're just, oh yeah, they were just Jesus freaks. They're just amazing. No, they were living in that tension. I'm a citizen of heaven. I must love the Lord. And the Lord tells me to love my neighbor. And I'm also a citizen here. So I just can't see this person on the ground dying and leave him there. And so this is what changed the world. So do you have this conviction? You know, when the Babylonians took the Israelites away to exile, and now the Jews were living in this foreign land, God spoke to them. And this is exactly what God told them in Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. But please hear this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this would have been directly you know, given to Daniel. Daniel is a part of this. Thus says the Lord to all the exiles, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare. Another translation says prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare or prosperity, you will find your welfare, your prosperity. So do you see how clear that is? This was a handwritten letter from God to the exiles. Here's my command to you guys. Okay, you guys are citizens of my kingdom, I know that, you're Jews. But now you're living in Babylon, you're going to be there for a long time, 70 years. Be good citizens there, be good citizens and seek the welfare of that city. Babylon, a pagan city? Awash with idolatry? Yeah, seek the welfare of that city. Because as that city prospers, you will prosper. Be good citizens. So now, when you turn to work, do you see how appropriate this would be? That when you get to work on Monday morning, you're not like, <coughs> red lines, right? I, I really hate this place. I really hate all of you. I'm looking for a new job as soon as I can. I mean, that might be true. Okay, maybe God will send you somewhere else. But for the most part, it's like, well, some of you, it's not even red lines. Like, woo, dive in, right? When's the next party? Unless, whatever, right? When's the next, like, shady deal? I'm all in. Not that, but it's, Lord, there are red lines, but what do I do, Lord? Right, because I am a citizen of this place as well. Right, what are the different things that I can do to seek the welfare of this place? And so we're going to come to a close, but we, this brings us to the last gospel thing we should have, which is gospel actions, gospel actions. And this is going to be a lot briefer because we're going to touch on this more in the weeks ahead, but gospel actions. So gospel identity led to gospel convictions, and then that produced gospel actions. So you see that with Daniel 1.19, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So there we see so clearly one of the outworkings of gospel identity and gospel convictions. Being a citizen of heaven but also here, realizing that tension, living there. One of the clearest outcomes, one of the first outcomes was they were just excellent at what they were doing. If there's nothing else you see about Daniel and his friends throughout the story of Daniel, they were just excellent at everything that they did. And of course, God gave them that excellence. God empowered them with those abilities. 
but they walked in it, right? They were men of integrity. They were men of honor, excellence, competence, skill. Everything that was thrown at them, they just excelled. They were excellent. And why is that? Well, it's because they had that clear understanding, I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm doing this for the Lord. And so this is a gospel action. It flows out of a clear understanding of the gospel. Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation where you shine as lights in the world. And right before that, Paul was talking about Jesus coming down and dying for us on the cross. Be like him. Can understand what he did. And so now shine like lights. Be excellent at what you do. And we're going to talk a lot more about this in the weeks ahead. And I understand some of us might feel judged by that. I, I feel judged by that. <laughs> I remember back when I was in college, I used to work different odd jobs. And I, I didn't have a good record. I, I was a valet at Duke's Malibu in Malibu, California. And I got fired because I crashed. I think it was, an, it was an expedition into like a Ford Taurus or something. Boom. <laughs> and then I kind of like didn't talk about it. I kind of hit it. And then later the boss found out, fired me on the spot. Okay, so I wasn't too excellent there. And they knew I was a Christian. I remember one time I was working at an after-school uh, tutoring program, and then somebody pulled me aside going, Roy, man, you got to be careful because the boss is watching you because you're always reading something else when you're supposed to be tutoring the kids, right? And I always had a book, right? I'm always, like, reading something. And then uh, he also said, you know what? And he also sees you sleeping. You're always sleeping, right, while you're supposed to tutoring the So I, I wasn't the best, right? I wasn't the best witness, so if you feel heavy-hearted, if you feel judged, I'm right there. I understand. But nonetheless, this is one of the gospel actions that will flow out, is over time, you will begin to be excellent in what you do. You will pursue excellence. You know, Martin Luther, to quote him again, he said, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on his shoes, but by making a good shoe. <laughs> Amen. So if you want to do your duty as a Christian shoemaker and be a good, faithful Christian employee, just make a good shoe. Don't, stop putting all these Christian things all over your work. You don't need to carry a cross into work, right? I'm here. Just do a good job at work. And also let them know that you're a believer. And live in that tension. And then let God work. So this was the first outflow, the gospel action. But here's another one, and we're going to close with this. But Daniel and his friends also sought the good of the entire palace they were in. So you see that in Daniel 1, 8 through 14. Therefore, Daniel asked the chief of the eunuch to allow him not to defile himself, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So why are you asking me to not eat the king's food? What if you start looking really bad and then the king will come after my head, right? Because I'm in charge of you. That's what's happening here. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the other youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So the stewards listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. So do you see this amazing example from this 15-year-old teenager 
Daniel, in this hostile environment, living in this tension as a citizen of heaven, but a citizen of Babylon, he sought the welfare, he sought the well-being of the palace. He sought the well-being of the chief of the eunuchs. He sought the well-being of the steward there. Because he knew if he was refusing this food, it was going to be the heads of all these people around him, and he didn't say, oh, I don't care, I'm a Christian, right? I gotta, I gotta stand up for what I believe, right? Red line, I'm not crossing that, I don't care what happens to you. No, he sought the welfare of everyone there. He's like, oh, okay, he's like, I understand. It might be your head, it might be my head too. He's like, just give us vegetables and water to eat for 10 days and test us. Test us, see what God will do. And if we look worse, and we'll go back to the food, that's what Daniel's implying, we will go back, we will follow so he was agreeing and he was working with them. He was seeking the welfare. Just like God said, seek the welfare of the city. So Daniel, in other words, took a risk and he reached out. So how many guys are doing that at work? Yeah, how many times have I done that when I was at work out there? But have you taken risks and reached out in order to not only be a Christian and not cross red lines, but to seek the welfare of your company. Not only to be excellent so that you get promoted and promoted and promoted and now you're getting bigger paychecks, but you're seeking, you're being excellent in order to seek the welfare of your workplace. Right, you're taking a risk. You're collaborating with people. Okay, as a Christian, not as a covert, right? You're not undercover. People know, very clear, loud and clear. You're a Christian, you're a believer. You're kind of weird. But you're always reaching out to us. You're always taking a risk. This was Daniel. He took a huge risk. And it could have gone all very badly. And yet he took that risk. So will you. Right? This is the gospel action. And then, because he took that risk, because he was centered and rooted in his identity in God, he was committed to God, he was reaching out to others in God, God brought salvation. So look at Daniel 1, 15 through 20. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Okay, that was a win. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in. So after their three-year training was over, the king said, bring them in. Bring in all these Jews. So they brought in Daniel and his friends, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than everyone else, all the magicians, enchanters throughout his kingdom. So what is that? God brought a great salvation. Amen? Yeah, this, is, this is how God will respond every time. I, I really believe that. It doesn't guarantee that you're always gonna preserve your job and you're gonna get bigger paychecks, but what it does guarantee is God will deliver you from whatever that problem is, immediate problem, and he will use you. He used them, he used them. And this just blows my mind, but Daniel closes this chapter with verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Did you catch that? Do you know what King Cyrus is? Do you know who that is? That's the king of the very next empire after Nebuchadnezzar is long gone. After Nebuchadnezzar's son is long gone. After even his grandson was murdered and gone. After Babylon fell. And now the Persians have taken over. A new king is in town. A new power is in town. 
King Cyrus is here. And what does it say? Daniel was still there. Daniel was still there. And so I close with this, brothers and sisters. But if you will just be rooted in the gospel, your identity, if you will just have these convictions of being dual citizens, yes, first of heaven, but also here, and you begin to live that out in excellence, begin to take risks and reach out, God will save you, but not only save you in that moment, but you know what will happen? You are going to be evergreen. You're going to be evergreen. What does that mean? You're going to outlast your company. See, I know how you guys think. You walk into work every Monday and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to perform. You know, I got I to last here as if you're like this little fluttering leaf. And all these big powers, right? You know, the CEO and, oh, the, the head surgeon in my hospital. And, oh, I'm just a little leaf. They're going to cut me at any moment. And yet, what does the word of God say, brothers and sisters? It says, far more than your CEO or the head doctor of your hospital or wherever you work, the president of your university, far more than these places, who's going to last? Who's going to be around when these things are long gone? You are. You're evergreen. Do you understand? You are evergreen. Daniel was still there. Nobody thought Babylon would collapse. Babylon's gone now. Daniel's there until the first year of King Cyrus. And then he began to serve King Cyrus. He said, okay, I'll serve you now, king, until God takes me home. Do you understand that? It's a completely different way to come to work and be an employee. It's a completely different way to begin to work. Who's going to disappear? Not you. Your company, your hospital, your school is going to be long gone when you're still standing. Amen? Let's come before the Lord. Father God, we thank you so much, Father, for your word. We thank you for your truth. And I pray that your truth will go deep, deep into the hearts of your people, Lord. For your word is life. Your word is life. Businesses come and go, Lord. During the pandemic, we've seen several businesses close. New businesses pop up. But Lord God, the people of God, we are here. We stand here forever. Yes, job positions come and go all the time. CEOs come, they go all the time. And yet your people, Lord, we stand here forever. So Lord God, we love you. We thank you for these great, great promises, these great, great truths. We build our lives upon them. This is how we work. Help us, help us Lord, to understand them. Drive these truths deeper into our hearts. We thank you, Father. In your name we pray, amen.